From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Many Coloradans are letting down their guard about COVID-19, but one dentist says there are reasons to remain cautious, among them the threat of long COVID. He got sick, his symptoms lingered, and he can no longer see patients. We'll hear his story. Then tracking monkeypox in Colorado. Too early to say if it will become endemic in the U.S. Our hope is that we can get our arms around this and limit transmission to the point where the case counts go down. And we'll look at two recent Supreme Court rulings, one on public funding for religious schools and another on school prayer, and how they could change the landscape in Colorado. Plus, how one town hopes to reclaim its history six months after the state's most destructive wildfire. Hi, I'm Dan Brooks, and I donated my car to CPR. The car I donated was a 1996 Ford Explorer that my son had been driving. When he went off to college, he didn't need the car, and it was old enough and duct taped together enough that the rest of us in the family didn't feel safe driving it, and it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Didn't matter if the side door didn't open or the bumper was falling off. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Donate your car. It's easy at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Our first guest was among the first wave of Coloradans who got COVID in March of 2020. Dr. David Micklin, who lives in Louisville, was among the early sufferers of what's known as long COVID. But at the time, he really didn't understand what was happening. More than two years later, Micklin is still dealing with symptoms, and he's had to give up much of the life he knew before he got sick. Dr. Micklin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. As we said, you got COVID back in March of 2020, just as pandemic shutdowns were beginning. Do you know how you got it? Uh, I don't know for sure, but most likely it was from a dental patient. At the very beginning, if we can all remember back then, um, we we knew we were going to close our offices on a Wednesday, uh, March 18th. Right. Because I know... St. Patrick's Day was my last day. Uh-huh. And so we sent out an email to all of our patients telling them that we'd be closed. So we had just a ton of patients that Monday and Tuesday. Now, again, back at the very beginning, no social distancing. Uh, you know, our PPE was minimal. Um, and so I, and our patients obviously have to take their masks off for us to treat. Exactly. And even though they weren't wearing masks back then. So I assume that I got it then. So it sort of defeated the purpose of kind of closing down because you had this rush of patients. <laughs> Before you got the virus, you'd been watching reports from Europe. How concerned were you about the virus back then? I was very concerned. Uh, it seemed at that time we were about a month or so behind Italy and a couple weeks behind New York out here in Colorado. And so I, I saw what was coming. Um, and we tried to take the actions that we felt were appropriate at the time, again, not knowing how long would be closed, um, what would even happen. So we just did the best we could back then. How did you know you were coming down with COVID? What were your early symptoms? Well, at first, like everyone else, it was almost like a mini vacation, you know, mm -hmm. video happy hours, all that fun stuff. And then uh, about a week later, on March 25th, I remember the date, 2020, 
we were supposed to have a video happy hour. And yeah, I just wasn't feeling that that day. I didn't feel like it was time. So I told my wife, I think I'll miss this one. And it just felt blah. That's the best way I could describe it. Nothing unusual. But then almost as the hours progressed, I just really felt beaten up. So I figured, oh, I probably have this new disease. So right away, went down to the basement and uh, stayed there for two weeks. Uh, at the very beginning, if I know it seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago, pretty much they said if you had a, if you can breathe and your fever wasn't above 104, you're fine. Just, you know, trudge through it. Looking back, I think my symptoms were pretty severe, but not didn't meet the criteria for what they had. Mm. Um, my heart rate was just going crazy. Um, my blood pressure was like 200 over 150. Uh, and the fatigue, which I still suffer from, just not as bad, was just crazy. Um, I explain it like the fatigue as if you've been hit like with a tranquilizer dart. Mm. I say the feeling as if you've been up for two to three days straight. So people can relate to it. Not as if you just ran five miles fatigue, but have no sleep. And I really couldn't get out of bed. Eventually, you talked to doctors. What did they tell you? That was really early back then. <laughs> well, thankfully for me, my doctors have been very helpful and understanding. A big issue with a lot of long COVID, long hauler patients is they aren't believed, even to this day. They, um Doctors will say, well, it's all in your head or this or that. I, did, I was thankful that my doctors have been with me the whole way from my primary care to neurologists, but no one knew back then. Um, when I eventually emerged from the basement after uh, 14 days, I, would, I told my wife, I said, you know, I just don't feel right. There's something with my head um, back then. And I even called it brain fog before brain fog was brain fog. Now it's a term right. we talk about with long COVID. Exactly. And it's it's just such an like out of body, uncomfortable experience. And so I didn't know what to tell my doctors. So um, the good thing is I, I kind of kept like an email journal with my doctors. I said COVID day 14, day 20. So I have a record of the emails. But again, nobody knew what was happening back then. So as far as testing, testing was available. Um, my first test, I believe, was at the end of April, so over a month later, and um, it was negative. Was it sort of like the doctors were learning along with you about long COVID? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I'll never forget what my neurologist told me when I first saw her um, way back when. She said, Dave, you're my first long haul patient but I know you won't be my last. And now, yeah, I still talk to her. She says she has hun dozens, hundreds, so many. And I was the first one. So I find with my doctors that, yes, I am on the forefront of long COVID and I'm pretty much telling them what I'm experiencing and we're learning together. Um, right now, it's, it's still mostly just treat the symptoms. Mm. And w there's some progress being made. But back then, it was just, well, we don't know. <laughs> Did things start to get at least somewhat better after your initial bout with the virus? 
the acute symptoms that I had with the blood pressure and the the rapid heart rate, yeah, that subsided. But the fatigue, the migraine headaches, uh, the ringing in my ears, uh, that did not get better for quite a while. I'm still suffering with all those. Not as extreme as at the beginning, but I think part of it is my body just getting used to living with this. So I try, I used to run and I said, well, let me try exercise. And I just try to even walk around the block. And then I was in bed for three days afterwards. Hmm. So some doctors were telling me it's kind of like post-concussion syndrome. Some were saying it's chronic fatigue syndrome, but you treat each of those opposite, in opposite ways. One is rest, one is exercise. So we didn't even know how to even start with this thing. You had to stop seeing your dental patients. When did you realize you couldn't go back to practicing? Well, I still don't know if I'm there. <laughs> I was, but in reality, I would set goals for myself at the very beginning. And I would have a date in my mind where, okay, I'll be back by so-and-so date. And that date would come and I still felt really bad. Just, I explained it like the flu without the fever, just those aches and worn out type of feeling. Um, so finally I got to, okay, New Year's Day, 2021, I'm back in the office. And of course that came and went. And that's when I really sunk in that, okay, I have to stop putting deadlines and goals on myself uh, and just do the best I can. And then I started to come to terms with what I have, my, my disease, that I'm going to feel bad every day. And so my focus is I can feel bad every day and be all upset about it, or I could feel bad every day and get on with my life. The feeling bad isn't going anywhere. It's how I react to it. Uh, so I've kind of accepted that, that this is my life for now. And I tend to be optimistic and positive, and I try to help others like me um, because there are a lot now. <laughs> Yeah, obviously this has taken, taken an enormous medical toll. What about psychological for you? It's been very challenging. Um, I have a wonderful therapist, um, but again, nobody knew what I had or how to deal with it. It was just talking, talking through it, um, having the wonderful supports that I have with my family, my friends, my doctors, my work, people I work with is so crucial. So that helped with, yeah, at the beginning it was, uh, why me? Why me? But I can't live my life with why me? It is me. So, okay. <laughs> so I think psychologically, at first, it was like, what on earth is happening to me? But as it went on, for me, it was just, I've got the supports, I'm going to live the best life I can, and let's do it. You've also reached out to folks on the online community. What do you hear from them about the psychological toll, and has it helped you to talk to them? For me, it's, it's helped me initially to know that there are others like me, because again, at the beginning, there wasn't even a name for what I have. So, you know, misery loves company, so we had that. But what I find now with a lot of these message boards, at least for me, it's very depressing. Um, no one has a good story. Um, some people don't have any answers, and that's who I try to help. I've communicated with some people like me. Um, they seem to be at their wit's end. There are people that openly talk about suicide on these chat boards to 
thousands of strangers. And everyone's pleading with them, you're not alone, get help, get help, get help. I was in touch with this one young lady, um, didn't know her, spoke to her a few times, but she seemed pretty dire, desperate. And then I didn't hear from her again. And I just texted her, say, hey, I don't want to be a pest, just want to know you're okay. I never heard from her again, and I hope she's okay. Mm. So the message boards are great for support. Um, was one group called Survivor Corps on Facebook. They've taken a lot of action and have actually had interviews with Dr. Fauci. Um, they've had some moves uh, in Congress. They're uh, very vocal for this community, which I think is great. Uh, there's another great group for people who are listening. Uh, it's on uh, Slack, which is a channel message board, right. and it's called Body Politic. That is, is um, divided up into all different symptoms groups. And it's great to f find other people or they'll put things that helped them, didn't help them. Um, unfortunately, there's a, a section that says like victories or recovery. It's not that busy because I think if people do feel better, you don't wanna go back in that room with everyone. So there aren't a lot that I find success stories of getting on. Now they're there, but there's more that aren't there yet. Long COVID is defined as symptoms that persist beyond the initial phase of the virus. Estimates vary, but studies have shown about 20, even 30% of people who get COVID will end up with long COVID or at least symptoms that continue. How would you frame that for people who seem nonchalant about the possibility of getting the virus? <laughs> well, I... I look at it, we, we are all living with COVID now. Everyone's living with COVID. And some people are just feel like, okay, I get it. It's like the flu. I'm over it. Um, I'm not in the hospital. But then I tell people, well, look at me. I was never in the hospital. Uh, my life has totally changed. This isn't something to, to play with. It can happen to anyone. I was fit. Um, yeah, I, I did, took all the precautions I could at the beginning. Um, but this terrible thing got to me. Um, so as far as the definition of long COVID, uh, to me, it's someone who's personally, someone who's still suffering months afterwards. I know the definition might just be weeks or whatever, but what I have, what other people have, it's like, I call it life altering. It just totally upends your life and you just have to live with it. I understand you tried to apply for government benefits since you can't work, and your efforts were not successful. What happened? That is correct. Uh, you have to wait a year from your initial, quote, disability to apply for Social Security disability benefits. So I applied um, in April of 2021. November of 2021, I've got a rejection. I don't qualify for disability benefits. Okay, so I'm not going to stop. That's not me. Um, I said, let's file an appeal, and I found an attorney who just deals with this. We filed an appeal, and months later, they denied my appeal. Um, basically, I wasn't considered disabled enough for, for them. So right now, we're in this stage where we've been waiting since February for a hearing in front of a judge or video hearing whatever it is now, still haven't found out. What I think the issue is, and is, is that there just isn't the information. 
out there. And so a lot of these insurance companies or doctors even just don't know how to diagnose us. Um, now they're starting to get some rules and regulations, but it's still not specific enough. I mean, it's so hard to describe what we're all going through. Dr. Micklin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And I just want people to know who are suffering like I am, there is help out there. Check these boards. You're not alone. And we'll get through this together. Dr. David Micklin lives in Louisville, Colorado. He suffered from symptoms of long COVID for two years. Micklin contracted the virus in March of 2020. He used to be part of a dental practice in Denver, but had to stop working due to his symptoms. Dr. Micklin mentioned thoughts of suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, there is someone to talk to who can help at Colorado Crisis Services. The hotline is free and professional. Their number is 1-844-493-TALK or text TALK to 38255. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? I mean, now I feel like a Mexican-American man versus just feeling like a part-time Mexican and a part-time white wannabe guy. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast, Quien Are We?, is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quien Are We? everywhere you listen. Doses of the monkeypox vaccine are, quote, extremely limited, according to state health officials. So they're prioritizing populations that are at greatest risk, with additional clinics this week. There have been eight confirmed cases total in Colorado since the virus arrived. Nicole Comstock is going to help us understand its spread. She leads the state's health department's communicable disease branch and spoke with Ryan Warner. Nicole, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Are cases of monkeypox likely underreported in Colorado at this point? It is certainly possible. Our initial cases of monkeypox in Colorado had a travel history to a place where there are current monkeypox outbreaks occurring. Recently, though, we have had cases that have no travel history that likely acquired their infection here in Colorado. So we know that with any type of communicable disease, there are often cases who don't seek care, who aren't tested, might have more milder symptoms that don't cause them to see a medical provider. So it is certainly possible that there are cases of monkeypox in our community that public health has not detected. How serious have the confirmed cases been? Fortunately, none of our confirmed cases have needed to be hospitalized and everyone has survived and the symptoms um, resolve on their own over time. Okay, this number of doses from the federal stockpile, that seems almost laughable. Is that enough to slow the spread of something? So right now we're looking at getting people who are vaccinated who are at our highest risk groups. So these are gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men who have had multiple or anonymous sex partners any time in the previous 14 days prior to getting the vaccine. So it is an effort to try to get people protected, to try to mitigate further transmission of monkeypox. So yeah, certainly we look forward to getting more doses of vaccine so we can reach the groups at highest risk at this point. Why the focus on men who have sex with men? So at this point, 
it's important to stress that anyone can get monkeypox. Anyone is susceptible. So there's really nothing unique to the gay, bisexual, and men who have sex with other men population that makes them, you know, particularly susceptible to monkeypox. Anyone can get monkeypox. But currently, that's just where monkeypox is spreading at this time. Skin-to-skin contact poses the greatest risk. I have also read that it can be spread uh, through through the air, um, but what, it's just not as transmissible in that form? Right. So what you've read is correct. It, there is some evidence that monkeypox can be spread through like respiratory droplets. So someone who is infected with monkeypox could potentially have that virus, say, in like, you know, in their nose or their mouth. And if they're coughing or talking, those droplets can potentially be infectious if someone else were to be exposed to them. However, unlike COVID, where that transmission happens very easily, with monkeypox, it's thought to be harder to transmit in that way. So you would need to spend time probably within six feet of someone who is currently infected with monkeypox for a longer duration, for like probably several hours or more in order for that type of transmission to occur. The more likely way for monkeypox to be transmitted is if someone has um, a lesion or, you know, the rash on their skin and you have direct contact, skin-to-skin contact with that lesion. Do you think the administration of the vaccine will continue to be through these kind of state-sponsored clinics? Will this wind up in someone's doctor's office at some point? You know, a lot of that depends on how available the vaccine is. Because we have just limited availability at this time, you'll likely be seeing public health agencies um, here at the state or potentially down the road, perhaps our local partners have more easy access to the vaccine. Um, If the vaccine becomes more widely available, we are certainly planning on, you know, what other types of clinics, what other types of community partners might be able to offer that vaccine to populations at risk. The vaccine you've invoked is Gineos. Why is it in such short supply? And are there other vaccines that could be available? So, we, we've never had endemic monkeypox. So, you know, we've had over the last 20, 25 years, a few situations where monkeypox was introduced in the U.S. The first one was through animals, rodent type pets that came from um, endemic areas in Africa and then infected prairie dogs, uh, held as pets here in the U.S. and then from prairie dogs to humans. Um, and then there were some other introductions of monkeypox, kind of just small number of cases here and there for people who have had contact with monkeypox cases in endemic areas. So really there just hasn't been a need to have um, widespread monkeypox vaccine. There's another vaccine called ACAM2000, which is effective for monkeypox, but it's really used for smallpox. And smallpox has been eradicated since the 1970s. So there just hasn't been really a need to have widespread monkeypox vaccine. There really isn't a need to produce it um, until now, now that we're seeing these outbreaks and more community transmission here in the U.S., is the Janius one, is that like a one shot, one and done, or is it a series? It's a two shot series, four weeks apart. Is there decent testing in place for this? At this point, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment's state laboratory is the only lab in the state that is offering monkeypox testing. CDC at the national level is working hard to get commercial labs access to the testing supplies and reagents that are needed for monkeypox. So we suspect within the next few weeks, there will be commercial lab testing, which will really open up the availability of testing for healthcare providers. They won't have to all funnel through the state lab. If someone comes down with monkeypox, are there treatments? Should they get the vaccine at that point or what? 
So once someone is symptomatic with monkeypox, getting the vaccine isn't helpful. It's best to get the vaccine if you've been exposed to a case. And if you can get that vaccine within four days of that exposure, that is ideal. If you can get it within 14 days of that exposure between day four and 14, you may still have symptoms, but those symptoms will be milder than if you had no vaccine at all. In terms of people who are diagnosed with monkeypox, uh, most people do not need treatment. For people who might have certain underlying health conditions, there are some antiviral drugs that you can work with your clinician to talk about if those might be a benefit to you. Before we go, there's a word I want to key in on that you used, which was endemic. Is monkeypox now endemic to the United States as it has been in parts of Africa for some time? Not at this point. We are seeing these localized outbreaks across the U.S. and public health is working hard to you know, contain those and to protect people who might be at risk. So too early to say if it will become endemic in the U.S. Our hope is that we can get our arms around this and limit transmission to the point where the case counts go down. Nicole, grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Epidemiologist Nicole Comstock speaking with Colorado Matters host Ryan Warner. Comstock leads the state health department's communicable disease branch. Matt Bloom contributed to this reporting. When we come back, how the Supreme Court rulings about religion and public education could resonate here in Colorado. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The beasts of burden in the Colorado mineral booms of the late 1800s were burros, the Spanish word for a small, sturdy donkey. Males are jacks, females jennies, and each is better suited than a horse to carrying loads up and down precarious mountain passes, if the burro wants to. A donkey's stubbornness is legendary, though fans will tell you if one won't do something, it likely has a good reason. That's a factor making Colorado's only indigenous sport unpredictably thrilling. The first official pack borough race went over Mosquito Pass in 1949. Today, Fair Play's annual event covers nearly 30 miles. A runner leads with a halter and a rope. The borough bears a prospector's pack saddle. Runners may not ride their burrows, but pushing, pulling, and heaving are allowed. There's a cash prize for crossing the finish line first, and a dubious honor for coming in at the very end. Last ass over the pass. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. Lost in the shuffle of several momentous Supreme Court decisions are two significant rulings that impact public education. One decision relates to public funding for religious schools. The other is about school prayer. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine is here with us to talk about how those decisions might affect the landscape in Colorado. Hi, Jenny. Hello, Andrea. Until recently, the high court has required public school education to be free from religious affiliation or indoctrination. Jenny, let's take up the first court ruling. The state of Maine had excluded religious schools from receiving public money. Tell us about that case. Yeah, Maine is so rural, most school districts there don't have a high school. Here's how the state has dealt with that. It pays high schools to accept students from districts that don't have a high school. Families can also choose a private school, and the district will pay the same amount to that school to educate the student. The state wouldn't, though, pay the tuition for students to attend a religious private school. Two Maine families disagreed with that and challenged the state. So tell us about the ruling. What did the justices decide? and why. 
The Conservatives' supermajority on the court rejected Maine's ban, thereby forcing school districts to pay tuition at religious schools. They said the state paying tuition to private non-sectarian schools, but not private religious schools, amounts to discrimination against religion. Mm. And this is a court that has increasingly favored the role of religion in public life. And we should note five of the six conservatives on the court attended religious schools. What exactly does it mean when we say a religious school? What kinds of things did the schools in this case teach? Yeah, one of them expects teachers to, quote, integrate biblical principles with their teaching in every subject. And both schools can deny enrollment to students based on gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, and religion. Uh, Dissenting justices suggested that conflicts with the state's human rights law. What other concerns did the three dissenting justices have? Yeah, they said the state now treats everyone equally, a free public secular education for all. If a family wants a religious education, they should pay for it, not taxpayers. Uh, They said the decision continues the dismantling of the wall of separation between church and state. And this, by the way, is the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. That prohibits the government establishment of religion or actions that uh, unduly favor one religion over another. Justice Stephen Breyer pointed out there are more than 100 different religions in the U.S. And for taxpayers to support the teaching of one over the other is discriminatory. What have been the general reactions so far to the ruling? Public education advocates were dismayed. They're worried such a ruling will chip away at public dollars for public schools. But those in, in, uh, seeking to increase taxpayer funding for religious schools saw it as a victory. Uh, one of those was Ready Colorado, their uh, conservative education reform advocacy group. So what is likely to be the impact of this ruling here in Colorado? Well, there won't be any immediate changes in Colorado. The ruling does not require states, remember, to offer funding to religious schools if they don't already fund private schools. And Colorado doesn't have a state-level voucher program, but that doesn't mean there couldn't be attempts to pass one in the future. Right. Some believe it could mark the beginning of a new set of lawsuits. Yes, that's right. A number of states, including Colorado, have constitutional amendments that prohibit state tax dollars from aiding religious schools. And if you remember, that led to the Colorado Supreme Court in 2015 to strike down a voucher program in Douglas County. That program had allowed parents to use taxpayer dollars to send their children to private schools, including religious schools. Could there be a case that takes those state bans on someday? Well, we don't we don't know. One expert I talked to also thought it was unlikely another Colorado school district would set up a voucher program to allow students to go to schools outside the district. But the more probable set of future lawsuits might concern whether charter schools, those are independently run public schools, whether they can be run by religious organizations. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, Charter schools now have to be secular in how they're managed and what they teach. But some scholars think that there could be a future case applying the logic from that state of Maine case. That is, the high court would take up the question of whether prohibiting a religiously run charter school is discrimination under the Constitution. But there are many problems in that path. Like what? Well, quite simply, charter schools are defined in state statute as public schools and can't be religious. Also, 
Uh, major charter school organizations oppose the idea of charter schools being religious. They're subject to certain public laws, like they're not supposed to discriminate in their admissions, uh, unlike some private schools. At the same time, it's very clear that the legal ground here is shifting. Yeah, that's true. And the culture wars that have been foisted upon public schools are driving some families from those same public schools. But church-run charter schools bring up a whole host of problematic issues. CU Boulder's Kevin Wellner asks, if you have a church-run charter school, would the state be able to place restrictions on it? Like, This is a charter school. It's a public school. You have to run it as a public school. You can't run it as a private school, which means you can't be proselytizing. You can't use religion-motivated arguments to discriminate against members of the LGBTQ community, that sort of thing, right? So those are the sorts of questions that are likely to come up. But first, dozens of states like Colorado that have charter school laws banning religious association would have to be found unconstitutional. Okay, so Jenny, just last week, the court made a ruling in another case. This one involved whether a former high school football coach could pray on the 50-yard line after the games. How did they rule? In another six to three ruling, the conservative majority decided that the post-game prayers are protected by the First Amendment's free speech and free exercise of religion clauses. That is, the school district erred when it fired the coach when he wouldn't stop the prayers or refused to conduct them in a more private place. I understand Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote that the coach was being punished for engaging in a, quote, brief quiet, personal religious observance, not government speech. Gorsuch said the coach wasn't instructing players, discussing strategy, or doing anything the district paid him to. He said the case looked very different from cases in the past where courts have found that students were being coerced to pray. Now, not everyone agreed that his prayers were personal. Is that right? Yes. uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said the facts of the case show that the coach consistently invited others to join his prayers and for years led student athletes in prayer. And some players admitted they joined his prayers to avoid being benched. What else did the dissenters have to say? Sotomayor said the ruling elevates one individual's personal religious exercise at the time and space of their choosing over society's interest in protecting the separation between church and state. Others are concerned the decision erodes the protections of religious liberty for all. How could this ruling impact public schools in Colorado? Some say there could be big practical consequences for school districts and how they supervise teachers and other employees. They're worried restrictions on school prayer could be loosened. The School Superintendents Association called it a nightmarish ruling for districts. Uh, It said the ruling sows confusion as to whether prayer can be appropriate and whether a district can shield students from perceived or actual religious coercion. I would imagine it's also unknown how this might impact or bolster student religious expression. That is true. And it's also interesting to contemplate that these issues are arising in the context of a society in which Christianity remains dominant. What if it had been a Muslim coach kneeling and praying to Allah? Would the ruling have been the same? How much of the decision was a cultural decision? How issues in the future, Andrea, play out in Colorado school districts may depend upon the culture and beliefs of a community. 
Thank you, Jenny. You're welcome, Andrea. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. We've been talking about two recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings tied to religion and public education. When the Marshall Fire tore through the town of Superior, it also destroyed the building that housed the town's history. Six months later, the group behind the Superior Historical Museum is working to reopen in a new location and seeking the community's help sourcing artifacts. CPR's climate and environment reporter Miguel Otarala has the story. Some of this stuff blew in from someplace else. I don't even know. I think that was somebody's garage or something. That's not from here. (laughs) No. The Marshall Fire destroyed nearly 400 buildings here in Superior. It also literally burned down a piece of its history. A lot of stuff was flying around. Oh, here's a crown off the roof. Hmm. The Superior Historical Museum housed hundreds of artifacts from the town's early days. Now all that's left is a massive pile of rubble where its basement used to be. It's kind of sad to come in here, really. That's Errol Waligorski. He goes by Wally. He and the rest of the Superior Historical Commission opened the museum 12 years ago, repurposing an old camp house for coal miners in the early 1900s. It was a small museum, 24 feet by 24 feet, with a kitchen, living room, and two bedrooms. It was only open once a month and in the fall for an annual field trip by local second graders. But the items inside told the history of Superior, a mining and farming town that became a suburb of Boulder, and I was struck by the most destructive fire in Colorado history. They've also lost their homes, so there isn't anything else we can get from these people. So it's just a, a complete and total loss for the entire community. But the commission wants to start over. It plans to build a replica of the former museum and display a new set of artifacts donated by people with strong ties to Superior and the surrounding towns. The Marshall Fire is now also a part of that history. Lydia Yecki is the town's recreation coordinator. She's helping the commission recover items from the old museum. Uh, I think the, the desk that we want to keep is in that corner there somewhere. I was going to have the guys dig it out. She quickly finds it, a burnt desk chair tucked underneath some bushes. They want to keep a couple of remaining artifacts after the fire and display them as part of history. So this will be one of the things I'll keep. The museum also had a cream separator, a typewriter, and bird cages used to send canaries down into the coal mines. Yeki and the commission members are unsure how many of those items they'll be able to recover. They also don't know how long it'll take to find new items and to rebuild the museum. For now, they'll relocate to a bungalow that was the former home of Frank Grasso, a Polish immigrant who delivered milk to the town's residents in the early 1900s. Sorry, I still after reading about the museum's plans to rebuild in the local newspaper, Renee Llewellyn of Broomfield gave the commission a call. She's a descendant of the Vara family, one of the earliest settlers in the region. So right there where those condos are is where the mining town was. The view outside her property has changed a lot over the years. Instead of the old mining town, there's condos and office parks. She's always wanted to preserve her family's history, but the Marshall Fire showed her just how quickly it can be erased. It means a lot to me. Uh, the history of this area, family, residents, um, and the fire is history. It's, it's a huge part of our history now. 
Her mom had acquired several items from a school in the nearby mining town, including textbooks and a teacher's handbell. Inside her garage is an old pair of desk chairs, similar to the one Yeki had pulled out of the museum site. What is that, 1885. It's really gone from disaster zone to construction site. I've been in Superior Sagamore neighborhood, the Harper Lake neighborhood in Louisville. Construction crews are working tirelessly to clear ash and debris from construction sites. And in a few rare cases, people have even broken ground on a new home. Gary Safasan is the recovery director for Boulder County. He's proud of a lot of the progress that's being made, especially around a county program to clear debris from lots. He also says the recovery and rebuilding process isn't something that'll wrap up in a matter of weeks or months. This is years, years and years of recovery that's going to have to occur. We are very in the early stages of this. For proof of that, he points to rebuilding permits. Those 1,100 or so properties are in Louisville, Superior, and unincorporated Boulder County. So far, they've only given 11 property owners permission to start construction. That's just 1%. Sam also found a lot of people who are trying to rebuild didn't have enough insurance to cover the cost. Read more of his reporting on the rebuilding effort at CPR.org. When we come back, a Denver native helps Buzz Lightyear go to infinity and beyond. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. You're about to step out the door. You've got your keys, your wallet, and CPR. If you have your phone with you, we're just a tap away. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. Buzz Lightyear mission log, stardate 3901. After a full year of being marooned, our first hyperspeed test flight is a go. Who are you talking to? Uh, no one. You were narrating again. I was not. Just doing the mission log. You do know no one ever listens to those. I know that. Narrating helps me focus. Ready, Captain Lightyear? Ready as I'll ever be, Commander Hawthorne. This is exciting. A new adventure. I'm going to grant you four minutes to be off planet, but then you come right back to us. To infinity. And beyond. The new Pixar movie Lightyear is a spin-off of the wildly popular Toy Story franchise with a twist. The characters aren't toys this time around. Denver native Will Ross served as the editorial coordinator on the film. He spoke with my colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Will, welcome to Colorado Matters. Hello, it's great to be here. So Lightyear brings to life a character fans have known as a toy for 27 years. What do you think will surprise audiences about Buzz Lightyear, the hero, the human? You know, I think most of the surprises in the film are going to come from the situations that Buzz finds himself in and sort of how he interacts with them, the characters around him and the problems that they all face and everything is just something that's very human and very relatable. And, you know, I think once you move past uh, the plastic version of Buzz Lightyear, you'll get to see the human version in this movie. Yeah, what stood out to me was this idea of family. 
like you have the lead character, Buzz, sort of building this team and kind of reluctantly at first (laughs) to help him take on this mission. And the film does center around a lot on the camaraderie that they end up sharing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think, you know, with any good story, you want to have characters in crisis making decisions. And that's where the true character of who they are and what their nature is reveals themselves. And so we put these teams through a lot. They have a lot of trials and tribulations. And ultimately, what they're faced with defines who they are. And they come together to get through it. I really think at the end of the day, this film is about, you know, learning to work together as a team, learning to trust people, and understanding that despite folks' differences, that you can all function together as a team. I I heard a good thing, actually a quote from the director the other day as we were doing a little cheers to the movie. And he said, uh, you don't have to go to infinity and beyond alone, which I really liked. Yeah, what also stood out to me was the focus on diversity, racial diversity, diversity in age, physical ability. And there's also a nod to the LGBTQ community. Did that attract you to the project? Yeah, absolutely. I I remember when I initially saw the first cut of the film that I saw, which was slightly different. But the thing that always stayed all through and consistent the whole way through was the inclusion aspect and specifically the character of Alicia, who is my favorite character in the film. I think she is the strongest. She's the heart. She's the driving motivation for Buzz and her relationship to Buzz and her being such a unique and well-represented character in the story is ultimately what drives, drives the heart and the passion through the project. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely shined through. So where did you grow up in Denver? And I'm just curious, uh, how did that shape your entry into Hollywood? I grew up in North Trey Creek and I was always, you know, working on movies and always had a camera in my hand and was, you know, filming my friends and my pets and trying to make whatever Hmm. I could. And then I eventually moved over to working on student films and student projects for school. And it was always my main passion. And in high school, I I went to Denver Academy and I had some really great teachers there who helped me believe in myself and built up my confidence and made this like, you know, pipe dream and passion a reality. And then I started to get a little recognition for some of those movies. And then, you know, the possibility of film school became very real. And uh, I moved to California and I worked my butt off until I was able to get a job at Pixar. What would you say attracted you to animation? It it was interesting. So I, I used to work at Lucasfilm and I really enjoyed that. And working on live action projects is, you know, really rewarding and getting to be a part of that is super interesting. But ultimately what you're doing in the visual effects space is you're trying to make fake things look real and you just have to refine and Mm -hmm. refine and until it looks like everything else that's in the frame and so it has to match and so you spend a lot of time doing you know make look real work which is fun and great but i got a chance to work on a fully cg animated project there 
And all of a sudden, instead of worrying about 30% of the frame, you got to work on 100% of the frame. And so it was just pure creation and pure creativity. And I loved that. Everything that you could possibly look at and set your eyes on was created and was crafted and designed for a specific purpose. And it just opened up a whole new world. And I thought that that was so interesting. And I think there is just so much more room to explore in the animation space. So describe for us, what is your creative process? Like, what is it like? The most important thing for any anything is the script in the story. That, that is the, the foundation. And so you have to have something that you believe in and some project that is gonna touch audiences and is gonna reach them and has important characters that are saying something that matters in the world. And I think once you have that, all the rest of the the technical steps and the the actual work that goes into it, it all it all feels rewarding and it feels not like work. The Toy Story is just such a popular kind of iconic uh, series and franchise. So do you remember what it was like when you got the call that you were going to be a part of this project? Thank you for asking that question. That's that's a great question. So I, I remember, yeah, I remember seeing all of the Toy Story movies in theaters being completely moved and my age lined up with Andy's age really mm. well. And so when Andy went to college in the third film, no spoilers, but um, <laughs> he, uh, it, it, I, I mean, I remember crying in the theater. It was incredibly moving. And so when I found out that I was going to, you know, get to leave a small but important mark on that franchise and get to work on one of my favorite characters, it was it was really, really humbling. And it was very rewarding. And I could not have been more overcome with joy because I knew that they were working on the project when I got the job at Pixar, but I didn't know what project I was going to be on yet. And I was really hoping it was Lightyear. And so when it was, I was I was over the moon. Just curious, do you have a favorite scene in Lightyear? Oh, that that is tough to say. Um, I really appreciate and love... Um, a certain scene, which I don't want to reveal too much just in case people haven't seen, but it's it's a very emotional scene. And I I, I believe you've seen the movie, so I mm-hmm. think you know what I'm talking about. I do. Yeah. And I, I mean, that scene, I remember the first time that I saw it with final animation applied to it. And there was like, you know, small facial gestures to sort of help the performance. And I, I remember, get, you know, getting a little misty eyed. Will, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed doing this. Will Ross is from Denver. He spoke with Colorado Matters host Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Ross served as editorial coordinator on the new film Lightyear in the Toy Story franchise. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. 
Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.